0: Our God and Father, Lord, we rejoice this morning in your presence. We bow our heads in reverence for you. Oh God, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. Oh God, we thank you for the great privilege that we have to know you and to love you and to experience you and to walk with you and to talk with you and Oh Lord, the great privilege that we have even to have our life and our breath and everything that you give us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes anew this morning to see the great privilege of life and all that you are to us. And so much more than that, God, we are the objects of your saving love that God, you have snatched us from the fire that you have given us every spiritual blessing which is in Christ, that you've come to live in our hearts by your blessed Holy Spirit and caused us to be partakers of the powers of the coming age, to experience your righteousness and your peace and your joy, even here and now. We thank you for all that you have done for us in Christ. And Father, we ask that you would strengthen our faith and Help us, Lord, to seek more clearly and to hear and understand your word and respond in obedience. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to grow up in our faith and grow in respect the salvation and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus as we look intently at your word. Thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so then that brings us to our section of text in um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And uh, last week we we dealt with verses 6 through 12. And um, I just want to give you a brief review of that section. You recall that Paul makes a... uh, Transition in the text at verse 6. And there he begins to address an issue that's in the church. And uh, he uh, begins to talk about the issue that had been going on there in the church where uh, there were some Christians who were living an unruly and undisciplined life in the church. And even after being corrected by Paul and the apostles and addressed in the letter that he wrote in First Thessalonians, these still remained obstinate and disobedient. And so Paul is saying, okay, here's what you do when you have this kind of situation where you have this public, ongoing practice of sinful activity, even after uh, correction. And so he kind of goes into the whole issue and process of church discipline. And So we looked at that last week, and we talked about verses 6 through 12, and there in, in uh, verse 6, Paul gives them an imperative commandment. He says, now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he, when, he, when he addresses that in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying, I'm giving you this commandment by the authority of Jesus himself. And, of course, remember I told you that this, this uh, titles that he gives Jesus, The Lord Jesus Christ, whenever Paul uses all three of those, he means to emphasize, um, if you will, it's the majestic title of Jesus. Those those three titles together talk about the whole uh, nature of Christ and who he is. And and so he's, he's bringing Christ's authority upon this and giving them an imperative commandment. So when he does this and gives them this serious commandment, What is it that he commands? And here's what he says in verse 6. That you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you receive from us. So Paul is commanding the church, as we said last week, to shun and ostracize their Christian brother who is remaining in this unruly state. And he says that you keep away from them. Okay, and uh, this is an imperative commandment that the church is to deal with publicly. And uh, so he goes on, and then verses um, uh, 7 and 8, Paul presents a contrast between those brothers who are living in that unruly state and his own life. And he talks about how when he was there, he was an example to them of the things that uh, he is, is talking about, and he presents his own life in contrast to the life that these unruly brothers are living, okay, which he kind of lays out um, there, and he goes on, he says, for you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example, because we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And so he's, he's saying that these brothers in the church, the few who are disobedient, are living in an undisciplined way, and they're not doing any work. And Paul says, but you know, when we were there, we did work. And we and when we implored you to follow our example. And he goes on, verse 8, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. And of course, you know, Paul there is just laying out the fact that he he set this example not only him but the other apostles that were with him Silas and Timothy that they uh were laid forth this example that they they took care of themselves they made their own sustenance in order he says that we wouldn't be a burden to any of you verse 9 not because we do not have the right to this but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you so that you would follow our example. And so here Paul affirms the right of teaching pastors for monetary support from the church. And he says they have a right to this. And, and yet he's saying that uh, uh, they didn't exercise that right. And they did that on purpose to set forth this, this example when they came through Thessalonica. Well, <clears throat> he goes on, verse 10 through 12, and he says, For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. And now he's talking about, again, look, we used to give you this imperative. What was this imperative? If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Right? In other words, the church doesn't exist to feed the mouths of lazy loafers. Right? Instead, Christians are given this order. By the apostles and by Jesus. What? That they should work. They should live a quiet life and work and mind their own business. Right? And they should work so that they have an abundance so that they can do what? Share, Share with those who do have need. With those who do have legitimate needs. Right? Right? And so uh, he goes on, <clears throat> for we hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies, okay? And so he's, he's, uh, he's writing about this situation, and he says we hear about this very specific thing that's going on, Okay? And he's addressing that very specific thing and he's saying that those people who do no work at all are living an undisciplined life and that that behavior is worthy of correction by the corporate body of the church. You see how that's contained in Paul's words? Not only is it worthy of correction, but listen, he's giving a command to the church by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ that they deal with this issue. How should they deal with it? Well, he goes on here. Such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and to eat their own bread. He says, if anyone does, verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. You see that? Paul is giving an imperative commandment that the church deal with this issue. And uh, because, he says, these people are living an undisciplined life. They're not honoring God by the way that they live. And, and, And they do this thing publicly in the church. They profess to be Christian believers, but then they live like they're not in obedience to Christ. They profess to be Christian believers, but they don't surrender to the lordship of Christ. They, they profess to to, to uh, want to be in the fellowship of the body of Christians and experience all of the benefits thereof, but they don't want to do their part to glorify and honor God. Right? And so Paul says you need to deal with this, and you need to deal with it in a very specific way. And uh, <clears throat> he calls them also, he says they do no work at all, acting like busybodies. And I was explaining to you that this word busybodies... Um, is also translated in, in Peter's writings as a troublesome meddler. And the idea is, is uh, you know, what is a busybody, right? Well, a busybody in the New Testament, right, is a troublesome meddler. So the idea is they don't work. Instead, what do they do? They go around causing trouble and getting into people's business and dealing in other people's affairs, And it's it's typically related to trouble they're causing with their mouth. Their mouth is running and causing trouble instead of them being quiet and working hard like Christians ought to do. They're running their mouth and getting in other people's business instead of being quiet and working hard like a Christian ought to do. You see that? You see the contrast? Yeah? Okay. And so Paul's saying, look, you need to deal with these people. You need to deal with these people as a church together, okay? And so uh, that brings us to verses 13 and following. I'd like to just add these words from the last part of our lesson last week, which is near the top of page 111. There are two lessons to learn in this text we just looked at, verses 6 through 12. First... Christ commands the Christian to work hard for their own needs. And second, that Christians are not to be busybodies, that is, troublesome meddlers, in the business and affairs of others. It is crystal clear in this passage that this kind of behavior is not tolerated in the Christian church and is worthy of the process of church discipline. This process is a part of every healthy church. For a church which does not love its people enough to discipline and correct their misbehavior is not worthy of being called a church. Okay? I was explaining last week. If we preach the true gospel, right? Somebody tell me, what's the first word of the gospel? Repent. Repent is the first word of the gospel. I've explained that in other places, why that's the first word. But... If we go about and we preach to people that they ought to, in contrition, turn away from their sins and begin to follow and obey Christ, if if that is, if you will, uh, the first part of our message, what kind of a body of people would we be if we went on to condone people not doing that? And what weight and power, what conviction would come with our words if we spoke those merely as hot air and didn't hold any accountability to people to actually repent? If, if, you know, we all get together and call ourselves Christian and, and we get together every week and talk about how important it is to follow Jesus and we take the letter of the law apart in 100,000 pieces to figure out how we ought to apply these things to our life, but then every time somebody sins and they just go on and continue in the continual practice of sin, we just sweep that under the rug? What, what would that say about our profession? that it's empty, that it's meaningless, that it's powerless. Are you with me? That's why I'm saying you you can't call yourself a church if you preach this gospel, but you don't live this gospel. Right? And so these things are really important to understand. And this, you know, like if you... I'll commend a book to you. It's called The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Heard of that book? It's uh, written by Mark Dever. And he has a ministry called 9marks.org. Right? And if you can go to his website, it's loaded full of fabulous stuff. Okay? But uh, Mark Dever, in his book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, one of the nine marks is that a, a healthy church practices church discipline. And so if you're examining a church, and you're wondering if it's a healthy church for you to take your family to, this is a question you need to ask. Do you practice church discipline on uh, flagrant disobedience and continual practice of sin within your church body? And if so, how do you do that? Right? That's a question you need to ask about the church that you're attending. Because, I'm telling you and explaining to you, if a church does not practice church discipline, then it's not worthy to be called a church. And the profession of their faith is a bunch of hot air. That's what I'm telling you. So either they've misunderstood the gospel, or they've misunderstood how to apply the gospel in this specific way that we're discussing. Not only that, they're disobeying scripture right here, the scripture we're studying. Not to mention Matthew 18 and other passages, right? You with me? Okay. All right. So then, uh, with that, looking at verse 13 and following. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So he says here, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary of doing good. Now, again, Paul has a contrast here. Paul now presents yet another contrast when he says, but as for you, brethren. Here it is between the unruly busybody who refuses to work and the rest of the church. You see, he's saying there's some among you who live in an undisciplined manner and do no work at all, right? But as for you, the rest of you who do what is right, who follow Jesus and live in a disciplined and quiet, hardworking way, right? As for you, he says, do not grow weary of doing good. Doing good how? By working hard with your hands and eating your own bread and being quiet in your lifestyle. That's how. You understand what Paul's saying in this context? Okay. Okay. And so when he says, don't grow weary in doing good, he's talking specifically about their disciplined lifestyle that he's addressing. Are you with me? Okay. You see how important it is to deal with Scripture in its context? It's the context of words that bring definition to what those words mean. You can't just yank something out of its context and then try to define it. I mean, you can do that, but you're not being faithful to that text. Are you with me? And so it's important to draw your understanding. I mean, we could say don't grow weary in doing good, and we could apply that to all kinds of things. Right? But in this context, it means something very specific. What does it mean? It, it mean, The doing good here is living a disciplined, quiet, hardworking Christian life and working for your own sustenance. That's what he means here. Okay? In this contrast, he means to encourage the church at large to press on in their virtuous example of working hard to provide for their own living in a quiet and orderly lifestyle when he says, do not grow weary of doing good. In this contrast, it is important to note that Paul does not want them to be affected by these busybodies and become themselves lazy and disobedient, but in every way to follow Paul's example, verses 7 through 9, of hard work, so as not to be a burden on any of the brethren, verse 8, or the church at large. This is clearly seen by the fact that verse 13 is really a continuation of the authoritative command in verse 12, which he pronounced by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In summary, Paul is giving them an authoritative command to continue in their hard work and to not grow weary of doing good in doing so. Amen? Okay, so then, verse 14. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Now, Paul means to continue in his instruction from back in verse 6. When he said that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. Here Paul picks up the thought again to provide clarification when he says, If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. If you will, he's expanding on what he had said back in verse 6. In verse 6, he was really emphasizing the fact that this is an imperative commandment for you to deal with. And here is some basis why I want you to do that. Verses 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. Okay? And, and here in verse 14, he's going to expand on what he meant by keep away from every brother. Okay? And here he says, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. Okay? Here Paul is bringing further action upon a situation he's been dealing with since his first visit, which he tells us in, in verse 10, and also his first letter to the Thessalonians, which he dealt with this issue back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Because these lazy, busybodies had been stubbornly obstinate and refused to work, even after being corrected, Paul now exhorts the church to take corporate action in an official disciplinary proceeding. This is the third step in church disciplinary process outlined by our Lord in Matthew chapter 18. So if you will, looking at that uh, section of text, and I've kind of marked it there for you to see these steps in the process, Jesus says, Matthew 18:15 and following, and if your brother sins... Go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. So, if you will, MacArthur lists these in his commentary on the verse, on commentary for the verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. If you will, there's four steps there, which I marked with numbers in that passage of text there in Matthew. Step one is to confront the sinning believer privately for the specific sin. Okay, so that first one is Jesus says, go to him privately, just you and him, and say, look, man. What's this deal you got going on here? This ain't right. Brother, I love you. And you need to know what you're doing ain't right. But you do that in private. You do that in private. Step two, to confront them a second time with a witness present. Okay? Now you're going to that brother and you're saying, Look, this isn't just my perception of what's going on here. Okay? Okay? But I have this other brother who loves you too, by the way. And he can see what's going on. And the two of us are telling you, brother, you're out of line. You need to correct yourself. You need to get back on the straight and narrow before the heavy hand of God comes to correct you. Right? You with me? Faithful are the wounds of a friend, says the scripture. But then step three, right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. Tell the congregation publicly and to cut them off from normal fellowship and publicly ostracize them. That's step three in the church discipline process. Well, where do you get that, brother? 2 Thessalonians, chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. That's where I get that. You with me? That's what he means, that you keep away from every brother who lives an unruly life. And that you take special note of that person and do not associate with them. Okay? For what? So that they'll be ashamed of themselves. That's what it says. So that you will put them to shame. You understand? Well, that doesn't sound very loving. Really? What kind of love are you talking about? You with me? When you say it's not loving to ostracize a sinning brother, I want to know what kind of love you're talking about. Because that's not God's kind of love. God's kind of love deals with problems, it doesn't sweep them under the rug. God wants us to be restored to fellowship with Him. God doesn't want us to sin. Why? Sin is destructive. Sin hurts. Sin hurts people. Sin destroys people. Sin sends people to hell. Sin severs people from fellowship with God. Sin cuts people off from God and sends them to an eternal death outside of God's good presence to bless. Amen? Sin is utterly destructive. Right? And so, if you love somebody, you're going to deal with their sin. You're going to try to help them in a spirit of gentleness, right? There's a way that you do it. Of course, I'm not suggesting we go bust them over the head with the Bible, necessarily. Right? But the point is, is that God's kind of love demands, not only demands, but commands us by the authority of Jesus Christ to deal with that issue. Amen? Amen. That's what true love looks like, family. You understand? That's what true love looks like, and that's why God commands us in the world, in the Word, to deal with it that way. You with me? You have a question, Harold? Yes. Uh, when it says to cut them off, does that mean that they are not allowed to attend fellowship or come to church? That's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, no, I don't think it necessarily means that. But I was addressing this question after service last week. You have to understand, when it comes to implementing church discipline, it's governed by guiding principles, okay? Those guiding principles are being laid out in our lesson last week and today from the scripture in Matthew 18 and 2 Thessalonians 3 are the primary texts that deal with that. There are some other texts but my point is is that when you go to implement this okay there are guiding principles but those guiding principles don't define for us all of the dynamics that have to be dealt with in a given situation okay because those dynamics can be many and diverse so the way that you apply that okay demands that you use wisdom when you do it which is going to have to deal with some of the practical aspects of how that should be implemented Because church discipline issues are different, you know? Uh, They're they're many and they're varied. And they deal with uh, a whole host or scope of different kinds of issues within the church. What are we talking about here? What kind of sin are we talking about? You know, who's involved? What's the situation? Uh, All those things have to be examined when you talk about how you're going to apply it. Are you with me? So, like in this case, Paul is saying for these guys who wouldn't work and who were troublesome meddlers, he was saying, look, don't associate with that person. Not only don't associate with them, but don't feed them. <laughs> you, in this case, right, let their hunger drive them to the workplace. Right? But, of course, that may be different for somebody who's dealing with, for example, sexual immorality or, or uh, you know, some other kind of uh, a sin that has to be addressed in, in the process of church discipline. So when you go to deal with that issue, it's going to depend on what are the circumstances of that issue, are you with me, as to how you apply it. So when that happens, we have these guiding principles, but there's going to be wisdom that's involved in how you practically carry it out. Did I answer that? Yeah, I I was just thinking, if you drive them away or preventing attending your service, how do you, how do you mean reunite them Uh once, you know, if you drive them away. I think the circumstances to drive them away or not allow them into the fellowship of the service would be really rare. Because even after the fourth step of church disciplinary process, (laughs) which we're about to get to, um, when you treat somebody as a Gentile or a tax collector, that doesn't mean you don't let them come to your service. Right? because I mean, if what it means is, is that you seek to evangelize them and recognize the fact that they ain't saved. <laughs> right? I mean, you can, you can come here, but don't be confused about who you are. You're not a Christian if you live publicly in sin, especially among the fellowship of this body. And we recognize that together. And so when that person's among us, we seek to evangelize that person. We seek to love them, and, 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 but graciously guide them to the obedience of faith. Are you with me? Is that clear? Any other questions? It seems like step three is exactly opposite of what we were talking about, according to the project. Cut them off from normal fellowship and publicly ostracize them. Do we bring up their sin in front of the whole church and say, this is... They're doing and, you right? betcha. That's what verse three sounds like. You betcha. So I'm sorry, I don't see the the ambiguity. Well, in Second Thessalonians three six, just stay away from them. Uh huh. Is that different than tell the congregation publicly and cut them off from normal fellowship and publicly ostracize them? No. How is that different? So if Paul says to the whole church, okay, I'm writing a letter to Heritage Christian Fellowship. You with me? This is a letter for the whole church. And in your midst you have this sinning brothers who do no work at all, who are troublesome meddlers, who, um, you know who they are. So I'm writing to you, the church, to tell you how to deal with these guys. Keep away from them. Do not associate with them. Right? Right? That's what he's saying they should do. So um, that's telling the congregation publicly. It's, it's, It's saying to the congregation publicly, here we have these sinning brothers, and here's how we need to deal with them. Why do we do this? So that they will be ashamed of themselves. So that when they come into the fellowship of the church and nobody will talk to them and people won't openly embrace them and love them, we want to drive them to shame so that they will humble themselves and repent of their disobedience before God. And here we all are, God and everybody, saying to you, your sin is unacceptable to God and it's unacceptable to those of us who love you. That's what that's what that's about. So, um, so I, I don't see how that's... Uh, different from step three. I'm sorry. I do want to answer your question. Yeah, I guess I'm just confused if we're saying we're not kicking them out of the church. I don't understand what publicly ostracized means. Then. Okay, Terry? Well, no. publicly, but also personally, you, you don't say we're, we condemn you for not working and then invite them over to dinner at our house and feed them and allow them to keep on not working and providing for their own needs. Oh, so when oh, I get it, I, I think I think I get it. So when you say when you say when I have written publicly ostracized, you see that as put him out of the fellowship with the church. Is that what you're saying? That's what it seems like. Yeah. Well, so I don't see Paul saying that necessarily. Okay. Um, however, that may be something that needs to take place. That may be something that needs to. I wonder. You know, what is a troublesome meddler? Definitely don't. Im- keep them in the fellowship. Keep loving them and say, "Go get a job." Guys. Well, so here's what uh, he's going to go on. Listen, he's going to go on to say, "Do not regard them as an enemy, but admonish them as a brother." Question: Do you kick your brother out of the fellowship of the church? Well, like I said a few minutes ago, not normally. Not normally. There may be a situation where it demands that you do that. I'm not saying that that's not the case, right? But uh, uh, again, it's going to take wisdom, and it's going to take an examination of the circumstances as to understand how to practically apply this. These are guiding principles for us. And these are guiding principles about a situation that we don't even know everything about this situation. We know some details about it. But if you will, these are guiding principles for how the church corporately deals with um, uh, flagrant open disobedience. And so, again, it's just guiding principles. It's not, you know, somebody said, well, do we let them partake of the Lord's table? No. Right? No. There's all these questions that come to pass based on the dynamics of the whole situation. And, and these are principles to help guide us. Yes, ma'am. Isn't part of this step to um, have more people be aware of their sins so that they can, like, like bring it to the church to, like, yeah, typically when we do this here, okay, we, when we tell it to the church, it comes to the church with words like this. We want you to go to this brother or sister and love them. We want you to express your sincere desire to help them. We want you to, to uh, uh, express your sincere desire to see them come to repentance and obedience. We want you to personally hold them accountable for what they're doing in a spirit of love and gentleness, right? And in some cases, we want you to plead with this brother to repent of his sins, Amen. you know? I, I, you know, I mean, it, again, it depends on the dynamics and the scope of the situation. There's been a situation in our past, in our church history here, where we have, we have asked the church to publicly, to, to personally Go. Everybody in the church, go to this brother and plead with him to repent of his sin. So, uh, I think I answered that question.
1: Sorry, I didn't see you first. Okay. All right. Two more and then
0: we're going to move on. Could you clarify in Matthew, in the Matthew passage, it says, let him be to you as a Gentile and a text collector. And then here it says in 315, don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. Yes. So it I, looks like opposite things to me. It does. Which so is. is clarify what I'm saying. That's okay. the whole next five, ten minutes of my class. <laughs> okay. <five. laughs> okay. I was thinking that maybe it's hard for us to understand this because the fellowship, thing, I think, is a lot closer than what a lot of us. A lot of us, our experience has been going to church on Sunday, and if we're all in church on Sunday, you, know, you may not see them all week, but you're in church on Sunday, and that's fellowship, whereas in this the in Church, in a lot of the Old Testaments, they were eating together every day. I think. Mm-hmm. So it was- yeah, well, certainly in this situation, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so there's people were getting their meals
1: with everyone
0: every day. They were getting a free ride every day. You got it. Get, get this. Guess what? All of a sudden, we're going to cut that guy off. Yeah. yeah. And and guess what? All of a sudden, he's got a big problem on his hands. Yeah. So they were supporting yeah. him and mm-hmm. allowing him to not work. You got it. They were supporting. You remember how I told you that uh, eat your own bread um, mm-hmm. is a Hebraism. Mm-hmm. Which talks about your whole life substance. She, she's right. She's saying they were supporting him. These people in the church were supporting these troublesome meddlers who wouldn't work. These loudmouth busybodies. And Paul's saying, "Look, it's time to cut them off." Right. So, in the context of who they are, it's kind of pre- well, it's pretty clear anyway as to how they dealt with that situation. But I'm telling you again. You know, you may have some unsatisfied questions here because you want to know all the little nitty-gritty details about how this thing fleshes out. I'm telling you, I can't tell you that. Why? Because I don't know the dynamics of the situation that you want to talk about. The way that you practically employ these principles is going to vary from situation to situation based on the wisdom that is demanded by the guiding principles and how you flesh that out in the scope of the situation that you're dealing with. Are you with me? Okay, but thank you for that insight, Mary Beth. That's that's definitely true. Definitely true. That uh, and so for them, you know, hey, it was uh, easy to see that uh, this was going to drive them to repentance, right? And uh, of course, you can see other examples of how this took place. For example, in First Corinthians five, there's a, a church discipline situation there, and. And, of course, you, you understand that that brother wound up repenting and coming back. And in 2 Corinthians 2, right, Paul's commending the church for receiving him back into the fellowship and praising God for his humility and his repentance and all of that, right? Okay, so, step four. Officially remove them from the fellowship altogether and publicly and treat them as an unbeliever if they have persisted in sinning after the first three steps, Okay. So let's talk some more about this. Each step in the process is designed by God to restore the sinning person to repentance. Okay, that's the goal of it. The goal is not is not ultimately just to shame them. We don't want to shame anybody unless it produces some good fruit. Right? And and in this case, we want them to be ashamed so that they'll do what? And when they repent, they'll be restored to what? Fellowship, fellowship with who? The church. God first, okay. and then the church. Because they're reconciled to God, right? Because what does sin do? Sin violates our fellowship with God. Amen? And so this process is designed to restore them to obedience to God. Okay? And, and of course, that means then fellowship with, with uh, the church. Church discipline is a loving and restorative process which is vital to the life of the church. We cannot condone the sin of believers publicly in the church because this would be a denouncing of the essential human response required as the means of salvation, which are repentance and faith. The vital step of the human response is repentance, a genuine contrition motivated by saving faith, which results in the turning from sin to Christ in obedience. Repentance and faith are the result of regeneration. Therefore, the church publicly preaches, upholds, urges, and admonishes all people to repent from their sin and publicly confess their faith in obedience to Christ in baptism. You understand? That's what we do as a church. What? What do we do? We preach that people ought to repent. We uphold that doctrine that Christians, if you want to come to Christ, whoever you are, you must repent of your sins. You have to turn away from your sins and begin to follow Christ with a broken heart of contrition, broken over your sin, broken how you have offended God, broken how you have hurt others by your sin, and turn to Christ in humility, begin to uh, submit to His Lordship and follow Him and receive Him as Lord and King and Master of your life. Amen. Amen? That's what the church preaches. We uphold that. We preach that. Listen, we urge and admonish people to do that. If you got a preacher in the pulpit and he's not urging and admonishing people to, to hate their sin and to put off the old man and to put off the flesh and teaching you what sin is and how to identify it and how to turn away from it and telling you to make war with it, if your preacher ain't telling you those things, he ain't much of a preacher. Are you with me? Not only that, he ought to be exercised about it. He ought to be... You know, Paul said, I warned you for three years, night and day with tears, he said. What does that look like? I'm telling you, it's an impassioned preacher telling people, steer clear from the coming wrath. Turn away from your sins. You've offended the holy God. Your destruction is at hand. you with me? And that's just the first part of the gospel, right? Then comes all the glorious things that happen with faith and all the benefits that come with faith and all of those things, right, together make up the gospel, things I I wish I could elaborate on. So listen, flagrant, continued, and public disobedience to the faith is to ultimately and publicly be dealt with in the church After many private attempts to help the erring believer. Okay, this isn't something we're quick to do. Right? As a matter of fact, we're we're usually not quick enough. Because it's the last thing in the world we really want to do. Mm -hmm. Except we know that we want to do it because we need to do it. Because it's the right thing. And there's a point in time when it becomes abundantly clear that it's something we need to do. Right? And so, after many private attempts to try to help this erring person, right? There comes a point in time when it has to become public. They won't respond privately, right? If a person remains obstinate after many attempts to restore them to repentance, the church simply recognizes what is the obvious conclusion of their actions. As that they are not truly saved, at least by all outward appearance, and are to be regarded as a Gentile and a tax collector. Persistent and willful sinful activity from a once professing believer is treated in the New Testament as a forsaking of the faith which results in damnation, the same condemnation of the devil and of unbelievers. Let me put that another way. If you keep on sinning publicly, it's simply evidence that you're on your way to hell. You with me? We don't want to be ambiguous about this in the church. We need to be really clear about it. Okay? If you go on living in your sin, here's what the writer to the Hebrews says. No sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of fire which will consume Raging fire which will consume the enemies of God. Right? That's Hebrews ten twenty six. He says, If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of God's judgment. Understand? We cannot continue to practice sin. And when we do so, we manifest the fact that we haven't been truly saved. We haven't had that transforming work of regeneration that happens when somebody gets born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Because when that happens, the pattern in that person's life, right, is one of brokenness over sin, contrition, and repentance and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? You with me? Don't we need to clarify, Sean, Though that this is habitual that we're talking about? Yeah. Because otherwise, I mean, we all sin. Sure, we need to clarify habitual, right. So it's habitual. It's habitual, which means it's continual, right? I like words like flagrant. Mm -hmm. I think it, you know, that implies that it's public, that, you know, hey, it's right out here in front of God and everybody, right? right? Mm -hmm. And... um, uh, yeah, absolutely. It's imperative that we understand that this is the continual practice of sin. because why? Well, because we all sin, right? This doesn't mean that you know, if you commit some sin that the church ought to immediately bring you up front and you know you ought to be uh, We'd all publicly and <laughs> we would, we would all be in line, starting with me. Right. So yes, of course, we're talking about the continual ongoing practice of sin, which In this context, it's been addressed at least once privately by a brother. And then more times than not, usually people have been addressed 10 or 12 or 15 or 20 times before they get disciplined, right? But nevertheless, in this context, it's happened once by privately and then again with two or three witnesses, right? And then after continued disobedience after that, that's evidenced again then that person gets, you know, I mean, there's repeated attempts at mercy. We want to be gracious. We want to be merciful. We want to be kind. We want to be gentle, right? Paul says that you who are a spiritual. Restore such a one gently, right? Nevertheless, Paul says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him. He has an express purpose in mind. That purpose is so that he will be put to shame. Sin is a shameful thing, and it is to be recognized as such. Make no mistake here, Paul expects the church to unite together to put to shame a stubbornly sinful member. This they are to do by ostracizing and admonishing them, which is clearly seen by the statements, do not associate with them and admonish them as a brother. So, you know, you don't just not associate with them, but what else do you do? You admonish them, right? By the whole time you're you're disassociating from them, you're saying with a long bony finger like a prophet, don't do that anymore. Are you with me? There's an admonishment that's, that's coming to them, right? It's real clear what you're doing and why, okay? communicating when you admonish. And, of course, the obvious goal of this action is to restore them to repentance and obedience to faith, which, in this case, is our instruction in this letter. See here further clarification that both Christ and Paul expect obedience from Christians, and that if they persist in disobedience, both Christ and Paul expect the church to respond publicly to correct the misbehavior and to restore the erring person. It is important to see here that this is only the third step in the process of church discipline, as Paul is exhorting the church to take special note of that person and do not associate with him. We know this is the third step and not the fourth, because he goes on to say, yet do not regard him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So here he's not saying put them completely outside of the fellowship of the church. Why? Because you're still accepting them as a brother. Right? There's going to come a point in time when that sin continues on and continues on, even after the whole public ostracization of the church, and then you have no choice but to what? Publicly recognize that that kind of behavior is not consistent with somebody who's a child of God. Right? And the main purpose for that is the safety of the flock as a whole, so that they can see and understand you don't repent of your sins and you're not giving fruit of the evidence that you've been powerfully saved by Christ. You with me? Yeah. What uh, other word could you use for ostracize? Well, let's see. Paul says keep away. Then he says do not associate with. So, you know. Um, yeah, well, so then certainly you know what he means by do not associate with them right? Or or um, keep away from. Or some translations say keep aloof, aloof from, you know, which doesn't imply, look, I'm never going to look at you. I'm never going to be in the same building with you or anything like that. But there's a sense of, you know, aloof. It's very clear that I'm acting aloof towards you, right? And that's that's kind of the idea. Okay, well, with that then, See here the loving and gracious way we are to treat erring believers with much patience, giving them ample opportunity to consider their ways and repent, and yet firmly admonishing them to, f- to the fear of the Lord and obedience to the faith. All of this we do because we love their eternal soul more than their earthly comfort. Amen? Well, I'm going to end here. And there is this little section here. I want you to please read that. Because I'm done. I'm done with 2 Thessalonians. Okay? So I want to say this one thing before we quit, okay? There's a lesson that I taught you in the last year and a half that I didn't make much noise about and I want to point it out to you. Okay? And it's this. What God says in his word is really important. And I've manifested that to you because it took me 57 lessons to teach through the book of First and 2 Thessalonians. Okay? And when I did so... I dealt with every little single phrase throughout the whole section of both books, and I took them apart, and I showed you how they relate to other passages of Scripture, and we explained these things in great depth. We, we, were, we were open to examining and understanding and, and even uh, controversial situations and, and all of this, okay? Look, we took the Word of God apart piece by piece to see what it means, Okay? And the lesson that I'm pointing you to is this. What the Bible says is extremely important. Okay? And, you know, if you're ever not here within the safety of our fellowship, I want to encourage you to pay attention to how your pastors and your teachers are dealing with the Word of God. Do, do, do they go through the book of First and Second Thessalonians in five weeks? Eight weeks, right? Or do they even go through the books of Scripture and verses of Scripture? Are you with me? What I'm trying to do is tell you about a high view of Scripture. We, we need to see the Scripture as God speaking to us, and that's one of the main reasons why we come together in corporate worship together, is for God to speak and deliver to us the word of life, the bread of life, Are you with me? And it's important how a minister of the gospel deals with the text of Scripture. Extremely important. Okay? And uh, I wanted to point that out. And I want you to have thought about that. Because there's many a treacherous place out there that calls itself a church where the minister is not dealing soundly and honestly with the Word of God. And they may say things like, This is my Bible! (laughs) <laughs> I am what it says I am I can do what it says I can do right and then the Bible goes like that and he's telling you seven pious platitudes for making your wife happy or seven better re- uh, ways to for better time management or whatever you understand what I'm saying right they profess big words about the Bible but they don't deal with the text of scripture You with me? God, help us. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we praise you and we thank you for your goodness and your mercy in saying so many things comprehensively to us in your word. I pray, God, that we would stop as we read and think deeply and contemplate about the things that you have written in scripture. Let them sink into our hearts and God, let it transform us so that we be conformed into the image of Jesus. God, we want to be like Jesus. And we thank you for the privilege that we have, that you are here by your Holy Spirit changing us into his likeness. We honor you and we bless you for this privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.